happy Monday and happy 2022. This is Cordelia, the host of the We Healed Together podcast. Oh, I've missed you guys. I'm so sorry. I've been MIA lately. It's been a really busy season of life. And I have definitely missed doing the podcast at the frequency I was doing it at. But it's also been really nice to have a much needed break. (laughs) Needless to say, I'm very happy to be back and tuning in with you guys. I hope everyone had an amazing end of 2021. And I hope that 2022 brings everyone out there listening so much happiness, joy, and everyone remains healthy as well, as that's still something we're dealing with. I'll keep you posted. I'm still kind of navigating and considering and thinking exactly the frequency that I want to do the podcast this year because I don't want to get burnout again. (laughs) Definitely experienced some burnout at the end of last year. So bear with me as I, you know, decide what's going to be best going forward, but just know that I am going to keep doing the podcast. I love doing the podcast. I love talking with people. I love all the messages that you guys send me or that you all send me, and I so appreciate it. So what better way to come back from my hiatus than the unstoppable force that I have as a guest on here today and the topic that we're discussing. So the guest today is Anusha Hussein. She is incredible. She is a journalist and political analyst whose work is featured on CNN, MSNBC, PBS, and more. Her writings on politics, gender, race, immigration, and being Muslim in America are published on Forbes, CNN, The Daily Beast, and Medium. She's the author of an incredible book, which we are going to talk about today. I read it, and I absolutely encourage you guys to read it. It's called The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. She also has her own podcast. It's called The Spilling Chai Podcast. I definitely want to encourage you guys to check that out. Check out her podcast. Show her some love. She's an amazing person, and I sincerely hope that she receives so many followers and listeners and new readers from this loving community and being on here today. She is a Washington correspondent as well, where she pawns pens a political column for the iconic Bangladeshi newspaper, providing in-depth analysis on the latest from Capitol Hill. She completed her undergraduate studies at the University of Virginia and has a master's degree from the University of Sussex. She is fluent in five different languages She's currently living in Washington, D.C., and she's married, and she lives there with her husband and her two kids. If you want to know more about her, I've included a bio in 
the show notes. I've also put links in the show notes for her book. Again, I cannot stress how amazing her book is. I'm not getting compensated. She's not paying me to say this. Genuinely believe it. I absolutely would encourage anyone who has the funds to go order the book, buy the book, and support her. It's such a good book and there's so much good data in it. I honestly learned so much from it. I cannot speak highly enough about it. Check the show notes and I included links to the book or go to your local bookshop, tell them the name of the book and that you want to buy it. I've also included links to her Instagram so you can follow along, keep up with her. I've included her podcast as well. So I've included a link to her podcast and her podcast Instagram page. Again, show her some love there. I've also included her website in the show notes. I'm so excited for today's episode. I'm going to be talking with her about the book, which is, again, it's called The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. Again, I cannot think of a better way to come back from my hiatus. I'm so excited to talk with her today and to really dig into this amazing book. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to this conversation. And I hope you learn from it and benefit from it. And yeah, without further ado, let's get healing, y'all. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's such an honor to get a chance to speak with you. And for those of you who don't know, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself before we get into the episode today? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and for inviting me uh, onto your show. My name is Anusha Hussain, and I am an author. <laughs> <laughs> that now. Uh, I'm an author and political analyst. I'm the author of The Pain Gap, How Sexism and Racism in Healthcare Kill Women. And prior to my first book coming out, um, you probably know me from my writings for CNN, USA Today, Daily Beast, Forbes back in the day, um, and usually almost always about feminism, women's health, and women's rights. I loved your book. And again, the pain gap, how sexism and racism and healthcare kill women. I can't say enough good things about it. When I was reading it, I tend to have a pen just as I'm reading, especially nonfiction, because I'm, and I found myself just like highlighting, underlining your whole book. So <laughs> it was amazing. And I'm curious what inspired you to write the book and also what the process was like behind writing it. Wow, that is a great question. Uh, first of all, I totally relate because I was an English major. So <laughs> I love 
to highlight and take notes. I actually write entire books while I'm reading. Um, <laughs> just my notes on the side, so I totally get it. And that's a compliment for me to hear that someone did that to my book. Um, how I decided to write it was really... Um, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll see, you, I mean, the journey of writing a book and writing your book is really a journey and there's so many different levels and, and layers to it. Initially, I wanted to write a book about America's maternal health crisis. And then I eventually ended up opening up um, the topic to much more uh, general, just women's health um, overall. And um, yeah, that's how I decided to start writing the book. I started writing the book trying to write about America's maternal health crisis and I ended up being about a women's health crisis. Absolutely. And I, I think that definitely comes through in the book. So it's interesting to hear. I mean, it comes through that there was so much data packed in there surrounding the maternal health part. So I can see you're probably just so fired up as you learn more about that. <laughs> and you probably came across so much research that kind of expanded beyond there. Yeah, I didn't expect there to be so much research. And when I initially wanted to write it, I thought um, I wanted it to be about maternal health. And, you know, then COVID happened. And right. the agent at the time was just like, I don't think anyone, you know, wants another book about another like public health crisis. And uh, I just don't feel confident that, you know, we can get this done. And I was like, oh, don't worry about it. COVID is not going to come to America. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're like in lockdown. Um, it was interesting because I, I didn't expect there to be so much data. And I love that there's so much data. And people are yeah. so surprised that there's so much data. But what's so great about writing the book now and having written it uh, well, last year, is that there's so much data now backing women up to what we've always been saying. Right. <laughs> we're not believed. You know, no one believes us. We're being written off. We're being dismissed to death. And, and you know, not totally. only people of color, like, you know, I mean, the CDC announced, you know, recognized that racism right. is a public health crisis. So a lot of things that happened in the past year or so. Um, so I, I was, I'm, I love that there's so much data in the book because it just proves women right. Exactly. No, I, I do love that because I have, I, I don't know, I think data is so important. And sometimes it is hard just for a lay person to even know where to look. So that's why I love books like yours because it's, you know, it's written in a way that is, people can absorb the information, but there's so much good knowledge in there that I can't imagine what it must have taken to research it. Another thing I think you realize when people, when you, when you write a book is that people really don't read your book. Right. <laughs> like interviewed about it. <laughs> about it. I'm just like, Wow, I mean, we've all done like the skimming and stuff in college, but it's right. talking to me how many people don't actually read your book. And I did have one journalist ask me, um, she's much younger, but you know, not to right. be able. But <laughs> you know that your story, you know, just wasn't like a one off, right? And like, she has not read my book. <laughs> the whole book, I'm talking about my birth story, she doesn't know all the data that. Right. Is what I'm saying it's not just me yapping on for 300 pages but I was like wow, 
Oh, this is so fascinating. But it really shows you about the kind yeah. of credibility gap that women have, even with other women. You know? Totally. No, that's so true. That's such a good point. I love, and I love when people give examples too. It helps us understand it. <laughs> so I'm sure there's some people out there. So I want to start at the just most basic question ever, probably the easiest question you've ever been asked. But there's probably some people that are listening to us talk about the title and they're like, the pain gap killing women, like what's going on? So I would love it if you could just give like a quick little synopsis of, you know, what that title means and really what the book comes down to. Oh, great question. Well, I love the title so much. Oh, I do too, for sure. <laughs> Full credit for it. I actually wanted to call it hysterical. How sad. Yeah. And um, there was so much back and forth. People were like, no, that's so whatever, overused. And then we really liked all in your head. Um, oh, yeah. I still didn't want to call it that because women are always told it's in our heads. Right. But then, uh, Jessica Valenti, who wrote the foreword for my book and who yeah. is such a feminist icon and, and mentor and amazing role model and everything for me. Um, her upcoming book, she had already started writing, <laughs> all in your head. And she has a, had a newsletter at the time that was coming out. So we were we just said this book was untitled. Um, right. Someone came up with the pain gap, one of my editors, and I was just like, what does that even mean? Um, <laughs> and then, of course, we start talking about it, and it's so true. And, you know, the pain... The thing about women's health is that there's a knowledge gap. We know very, very little about women's right. bodies, women's biology, women's illnesses, um, because there's been very little uh, uh, just studies. And women have been systemically and legally <laughs> excluded right. from really until the 1990s and then really until like 2016. Like it really didn't make such, it wasn't like immediate. Right. Effect. Um, so there was, you know, there's a knowledge gap, there's a credibility gap where women are believed, and then there's a pain gap where women's pain isn't taken seriously, the pain isn't believed. And we actually have studies now that show that women wait longer in the emergency room to be seen for their pain, that, you know, men are more likely to be given pain medication. And it's interesting with women in pain because it's, we are expected to have a lot of pain and to right. be able tolerate a, a lot of pain, have a high threshold for pain. But then at the same time, we're not believed about our pain. <laughs> so it leads to us being dismissed to death. Right. You know, pain isn't being believed. And that's the, like a lot of the case studies and the stories I have in uh, my book and the pattern that was repeatedly, the pattern that emerged and the pattern that was repeatedly um, evident as soon as everyone, any woman started talking to me right away, I they right. weren't that they told me I was imagining it. And <laughs> every story the woman was told she was imagining her pain. And almost every case where the woman was not imagining her pain. And it was always something a lot more serious. It was like a right. tumor, or it was cancer, or it was endometriosis. So that's how it came about. And of course, for uh, you know, as soon as I started, the re I started the research for the book by talking to women. That's how I started. That's and, amazing. Yeah, and I love, can I tell you, I could just talk to women like forever. First of all, I just <laughs> love it. I feel like we have so much power yeah. in 
stories and you know we're not telling them especially our medical misogyny stories or our totally because we know we're not going to be believed we're not believed right <laughs> totally talking to women the pattern that emerged immediately was that every woman has a story right every has a story and every woman white woman has a uh, has a sexist story right and every color has a sexist and racist story so right that, the title came together but i, I had two that. women give me two very important parts of the title which was one editor who said it should be pain gap and then a friend who was like it can't be just sexism it has to be sexism and racism you're forgetting racism and i'm like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love that and I love to hear about the origin of it and I mean even the other titles that were under consideration that makes so much sense to you I thought in the book you did such an amazing job when you said hysterical that was one of my favorite parts of the book when you kind of historically broke down how this has literally been going on for like thousands of years yeah. and millennia like at literally yeah. the question I had while I was writing a lot of the questions I ask in the book I myself had and at right. one point I was like was it always like this or women just never believe right. you know, their bodies or their symptoms and it was like yes all the way up to the ancient Egyptians right like, the answer is it was yep. always like <laughs> It's fascinating to me. It's just fascinating. No, absolutely. And in that same section, I thought it was really powerful where you challenge doctors, medical professionals. I think you say, quote, like, start believing women and dismissing and stop dismissing women's real symptoms as, you know, emotional instability. And then I wrote down that you also challenged women to quote, embrace the power of hysteria and rethink it as a positive response, a way to speak our voice instead of saying staying silent. So in these interactions with medical and professionals, you know, what can women do? Can you elaborate more on this point of how can we show up better as women if we can't rely on the medical professionals to show up better for us? <laughs> That's a really good question. The book actually, you know, what I really love about the book is that even though we're talking so like doom and gloom and it's, you know, heavy topic, right. not a hopeless book. It's a very hopeful book. Yeah. Um, and I actually, the final chapter is all, I think I lay out like nine steps that you can, can take or uh, nine actions that you can take because I don't, the onus should not be on women. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I do not get raped. <laughs> exactly thanks tell me again what was it again dress don't drink don't walk home alone. Right. <laughs> don't dress provocative anything else <laughs> right exactly their homes when we're sleeping like i don't know okay so, right. I, so it, it, the owner should not be on women there are some empowering steps that women should take and it's also not an anti-medical book i'm not like doctors are so evil totally no important is that the system is actually working the way it's supposed to be working right yeah. medical system the healthcare system much like our legal system yeah. you know much like everything else the prison system 
everything else, I mean, it values certain lives more. It's supposed to value um, right. white more. It was built by white men. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and um, I just feel like the system is working, but America has changed. What Americans look like. Has right. And so I think that's really important. I mean, there was a study that came out in 2016 from the University of Virginia. Right. Majority of doctors in America still hold beliefs, really racist beliefs about black people that, you know, black skin is thicker, that black right. nurses don't experience the same amount of pain. This kind of, these really outdated and antiquated, incorrect. Right. Uh, these beliefs actually go all the way back to, you know, slavery. But, the, and, you know, this 20, 2016 was not that long ago. And the majority of doctors in America still had one of these beliefs. So it was so much of, you know, who treats us. Right. And, uh, and what they, what, you know, what they, what, imp, I, you can say implicit bias, but, right. you know, we all have implicit bias. So, and I don't think that the, the answer is, you know, <laughs> the implicit bias training. Right. You know, you, I'll let it be there. It's <laughs> He keeps popping up and saying hi. No, I think that's absolutely true. And I love that study you mentioned too. It's that study is so terrifying. It's crazy what people and it's it and, and you know it's not just race; it's gender too. Like an overwhelming number of people who suffer from chronic pain are women. Right. Like, but the still majority of mice that are tested for chronic pain treatments are male. Even the mice. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what I see in the book that's really interesting is that we really, and you know, I do this, I used to do this too, that we approach our health care um, as though the doctor is the most important person in it. But actually your health care, you should view it as a team effort. And right. the most important person is you. <laughs> right. You on yourself. And there's so many things in the book that even I didn't know, like, you know, keep, if, especially if you're a person of color, like, um, they actually say that, you know, they found that with black um, black women and black babies tend to survive more if their provider was black, if the doctor was black. Right. Um, I think it's really important that, you know, you keep a, a paper trail that you know that if you don't feel safe with your provider, or you feel like you're not being heard, you can change providers. But right. Team effort. And the more information you can give to your doctor, the better. Like I never knew it was a it was a collaboration. I always just thought the doctor was this magical person. Right. You never questioned the, the doctor. That's how I was raised. You yeah. never questioned her. And definitely as a woman of color, I didn't know that I could question a white man doctor. I just thought the doctor right. the balance is so off, right? <laughs> and isn't like go tell your doctor to F off. Right. Incredible that I mean I even saw a meme that was so like a Barbie meme but it said it was in the it was in the hospital and it was like a woman with her baby but it was like you can literally deny refuse anything. Um, <laughs> I, like, I did not know that. That's amazing. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that is totally part of what we're all kind of taught in society, like. And women especially, I mean, we're kind of raised to not question anyone. I mean, not even just talking about doctors. <laughs> In the book and towards that end of the chapter on how to advocate better for yourself, not that it should be on us, is that right. no such thing as the perfect patient. Yeah. There really 
isn't. But I think a lot of us try to be the perfect patient. We just try to be the perfect student, the perfect mom. I think like most right. people, wife, you yeah. know, like, like F all of that. Um, yeah. I mean, for a really long time, I was like, why didn't I speak up to this doctor who after like, you know, I'm in labor for 33 hours, I'm pushing for three, you know, they finally decide to do this emergency C-section and he, I'm, I was brought into the OR on a, on a rolling bed on like a stretcher and he right. didn't believe that I was in that much pain and he wanted me to walk over to the operating <laughs> Like I had a stuck between my legs and when I was like, I, I can't, you know, right. Okay, fine. I believe you. And he got me like some help, but that <laughs> man every day. But I didn't say anything to him. <laughs> hey, mother, you know, right? I was like, oh, I don't think I can do it. Oh, let me try. Like, right? That was like this man could have killed me. You know? Right? Even up until that point, after you know, they finally was like, this is an emergency situation. Right. But I was still. I don't know what the heck I was doing actually. Well, it's, it has to like feel humiliating too. Like I would feel kind of embarrassed to feel like I had to prove like I'm already having a baby. So it's like in my head, I would think, all right, well, I'm sure I'm sure a medical doctor knows I'm in pain if I'm having a child. But then it's like almost humiliating at another level when it's like, wait, why do I have to convince this guy that? I'm actually in pain. Does he, is this his first like childbirth situation? I really want to write like another book about it. It's so fascinating that people just think women have nothing better to do than what go to the hospital and lie. Right. <laughs> like all of us. Right. Exactly. It's like, it's not very convenient to just go to the emergency room and mix stuff up. Exactly. It's, I, I mean, that, right. Maybe some hypochondria. <laughs> Especially someone who's fully, like, ha you know, full-term pregnancy, having a kid. Yeah, just for fun, you're going to, like, go to the emergency room, see what you can do. I think that you highlight on such good points, though. And I loved when we were discussing, and in your book, you discussed a lot about, of course, there is this huge disparity between men and women. But I thought it was so interesting to learn more about how even within women, there's another disparity between white women and women of color. And I that was really educational for me to know. And I think, you know, that's something, especially in these last few years, that I think we're, as a country, talking more and more about. But some of those statistics are just gut-wrenching and heartbreaking yeah. and it's you know like you said earlier you might call it like an implicit bias or something but something is just at a systematic level is clearly exactly there's something very wrong <laughs> you use the key word which is systematic systemic right and i you know one of the big blessings i think from the pandemic has just been like the America's racial disparities have kind of been exposed for the world. It's right. I feel like pre-COVID, we could have been like pre-pandemic years, the before times, as they're called. Yeah. Sat around me like, is racism really a problem in America? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, if you, people still are. Even if you brought that word up, I mean, you just couldn't even like talk about it. Yeah. And 
it is just undeniable. I mean, that's one of the things I, I, it's like a relief that we can finally say that it's racism, not race. Right. Um, it's killing women in America. And I really, you know, the book, um, it's presented like it's all about mater maternal health. But what I think right. is, is interesting and why I always come back to maternal health is not only because of my own um, background and my own professional background, right. but because maternal health is, uh, and maternal mortality is an overall indicator for not only women's health in society, but um, for not only how many women are dying giving birth. Right. Um, for how well your uh, the overall position of women in society, how well your healthcare system is running, because we know how to save women right. in childbirth. We know how to save women from dying in childbirth. Okay, it's it's a question of access. It's a question of a lot right. of things. There is something preventable? Like women have been dying in childbirth, and childbirth has been dangerous since the beginning of time. But we know how to intervene. Right, we have all the tools. It's a question. Right. It's a priority. And the answer is no. Why does the richest country in the world have the highest maternal mortality numbers? It's not because America doesn't have the expertise or the <laughs> resources. And then you have to see who is dying. And this is these are the numbers. Like I, I that's why I wanted my whole book to be about this because I was just right. like, I'm not talking about this every day. I'm just shocked. Like even if you're a racist person, you have to agree the numbers are shocking. Exactly. Actually, here. You know, white women are dying, and women of color are two to three, um, more two to three times more likely to die. But that number for black women is two hundred and forty-three percent more likely to die. The numbers are always starkest between blacks and whites, and that's right. black and white people. And that's why I always think it's so interesting. And I say that um, when something is bad in America for women, okay, it's right. bad for white women, and it's really bad for women of color, but it's always the worst for black women. And what right. is that? Because pre-COVID, we, we used to say really racist things like, oh, it's uh, uh, it's because black people are less educated, they're uneducated, or they're welfare, right. or they're doing this. And now we have data that says, if you're an educated uh, black woman in America with a college degree or higher, you are five times more likely to die giving birth than a white woman with um, a high school degree. You have to ask what the heck is going on. Right. And that's why when that reporter, when that journalist asked me, my story was a one-off. <laughs> in the midst of America's maternal health crisis, which is ongoing and getting worse. It's not getting better. Right. Um, women in this generation are more likely to die than uh, women in their mother's generations, which is just in insane if you think about it. Um, but no, I mean, it just, it is absolutely, like, astounding to learn those statistics. And I think it is good to highlight the maternal, those statistics around childbirth, because, I mean, it shows you what a huge, you know, disparity it is. And as you said, even if you are a racist person, it's impossible to look at those numbers and... Yeah, I mean... It's just incredible. I found even the statistics surrounding like pain medication that you included in the book to be like those blew me away. I wrote down compared to white patients, you wrote black patients are 40% less likely to receive medication to ease acute pain 
and then Hispanics were 25% like less likely. I mean, that's a huge percentile. You know, that's, it's a lot. <laughs> Another thing, this is going back to my title, you know, this happened to me when I was giving birth and uh, I had, you know, asked for the epidural, I was hooked up and I kept telling them I could feel everything. They kept right. up pain medication. And then finally they said, but I, but I could feel everything. Right. I mean, this is like, I'm like in labor and no one's believing me that it's painful. Right. <laughs> I call in the anesthesiologist because they were like, we can't give you any more pain medication. You're above the legal limit. Like I'm some drug addict. Right. Yeah. Or get. Uh, like, <laughs> I don't think epidural is the drug that we'd be looking for. I hate. Into your spine and your back, by the way. It's not like morphine. Exactly. Or more. I don't know. I've heard that <laughs> Exactly. I called the anesthesiologist, and guess what? The needle had slipped out. I wasn't hooked up at all. I was oh not my. the whole time. And by that time, you know, I was shaking. I had 104 fever from the pain. Right. Coming out. I can't push anymore. Like so, you can be dismissed to death just from not being um, not being believed. And the and pain is a huge uh, indicator for that. And and it comes back to, I mean, I you know, I do I I. I, I stipulate maternal health a lot, but it's also heart disease. I love the example oh, yeah. of heart disease because it's presented as such a male disease. And we think of it as such a male disease. Right. Heart disease is actually the leading killer of women in America. And 60% of those people are leading amongst African-American women. But what do we think about if someone's having a heart attack? Like totally Hollywood, right? Right. Man, and he's like a white middle-aged man and he's <laughs> hurting but women don't experience heart attacks like that women have they feel nauseous we feel pain in our necks and you know our arms hurt and i have the story of tara robinson in my book and my god she had three heart attacks in like 48 hours was dismissed from the hospital like you know twice mid heart attack which <laughs> happens a lot to women especially right uh, mid 50s you will be dismissed from the because people don't believe you and that's not what they think a heart attack is supposed to look like and in my book i talk about how basically for the past like 35 years we've been studying heart disease as a male disease and it's really a right. woman, a woman. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. no i mean that touches on what you were saying earlier too with the knowledge gap which was equally as I mean, that's something that I honestly didn't really know too much about that. I think that we're just told over and over again, study show, but then we never know. Like I never had stopped to think about like, oh wait, who did they study actually? <laughs> who are you studying on? And this is what's so fascinating to me because the standard for health in America, the standard and the idea of health is a middle-aged white guy. Right. And just now that we're finding out, I mean, this happened in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. the National Association of Women Scientists were like, what's going on, guys? Why are you studying like uterine cancer? And there are <laughs> no women in the trials. <laughs> what the heck is that about? And then, by the way, even though they raised the alarm and, yeah, there was like a mandate that was passed. I mean, nothing right. now. I mean, the numbers are really skewed. And in 2018, they did a study. They had to no. They had to bring back take Ambien off the market because they found out after it was released that women take like eight hours longer than men <laughs> to digest. 
they were right. driving under the influence, which was really dangerous. Right. <laughs> they had to pull it, but it's like, did you not think? But you know what? A lot of doctors that I interview in the book are like, well, it's much cheaper, right? Yeah. Much to leave women out. And then, of course, in America, we have a whole fetus obsession. And um, right. during the pandemic, uh, it really came out when the COVID vaccine first came out. I mean, in real time. Right women were excluded. Absolutely. I mean, when I, the book and I had turned in, I think the first draft of my manuscript and the vaccine had come, I was livid. Right. I was like, oh, this is happening in real time. Okay. <laughs> women, we had to hold everything on our backs. Okay. Especially right. mothers. I mean, I became a fourth grade teacher overnight. That is not <laughs> I ever want to do plus her tech support. Right. Right. And everything happened. Uh, on the backs of women. We had no, you know, fall by right. moms did everything. Felt like women were really there for each other. And then the most anticipated vaccine comes yeah. out. Yeah. Frontline workers are women. And we're like, right. let's test on pregnant women. And it's like, hello. Exactly. Exactly. That's so sick, right? Yeah. How do we have a vaccine for everybody if we don't have a vaccine for pregnant women? And then it was all like, oh, the fetus, the fetus. Right. You know, no vaccines have actually harmed the fetus. It was only the smallpox vaccine. And we right. know that, right, that caused like abnormalities yeah. in, in the fetus, but really no vaccine since. And, um, you know, I talk about this, it gets very scientific, but I talk about this in the book but because there's no live virus in right. the vaccine, like the chances of it even. And women want to know because basically- yeah. And you're on your own. Figure it out with your doctor. And what's your doctor telling you? It's your personal decision. Like, how <laughs> right. can, you, know, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but it's really stressful, right? You can right. imagine you're pregnant or you have a kid. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. It, no guidance. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I know. I think you wrote in the book that like the risk of dying from COVID was 70% higher for pregnant women. So it is, it's really astounding that it's like, oh, hey, we absolutely know this subgroup of people have a really high risk of dying if they get COVID, but we're not going to look into the yeah. vaccine. <laughs> you know, six months later that the vaccines are, are safe. Right. Right. Doing is that instead of a control group, they just tested on women in an uncontrolled group. Right. Well, well, just, <laughs> the same thing happened when they were rolling out the vaccine, like in London. Yeah. In day, so. it, absolutely. And it's like the same people. I mean, again, it's the systemic issue of I, during the pandemic, I remember hearing on the news and just different experts talking about it and being like, well, they, we don't know if it would be safe because, you know, that hasn't been studied. And again, it's like, well, why wasn't the study set up differently? <laughs> why didn't we incorporate that into the study? And, and I know that, that science and medicine have, I mean, yeah, this is a problem. We know, but it impacts our health. Right. Not, this is not like a design class or a fashion school. Yeah. This, Help. And they're even like, you know, NIH directors who are women who are like, right. we literally know less about every aspect of uh, female biology. And that's not okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. And even, you know, circling back to your 
the 2016 University of Virginia study you mentioned about how, you know, which also is a really great school. I think you attended, by the way. <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, University of, I don't know, Timbuktu. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good school. And, you know, I remember the first time when I read about that study, I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe they should change these, like the MCAT, the admissions exams, if these doctors and residents, and a resident is somebody who has gone through all of medical school already, so they are a practicing physician, if they are answer, at one of like the best schools in the country, if their answer is, oh, I actually think that black people, they have less sensitive nerve endings, you know, I'm like, wait, 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 we need to start this all over if the admission process, like, is admitting people like that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, a, a, it's not even a side issue. It's kind of a major issue in everything that's going on because it's, we can call it biases, implicit, but some of these, it's like you wouldn't have to dig very deep to uncover some of these biases that some of these physicians hold. I mean, it's just really disturbing, I think. It's just so interesting, too, because, like, it just reminds you also how we have, like, women's stories have no value, but they're so important. Like, what I love about how the book collects these stories is that this right. matters. You know, people will be like, well, what's your data? Or, like, what's the expert? <laughs> I'm like, she is. Right. And the first thing I would tell women before we started speaking was, I believe you, even before they told yeah. me. Because what I do and why would, you know what I right. mean? They're so important. And that is where you see the patterns emerging. And so many women right. repeatedly told me, like, how do I know, you know, how do you, how do I know that he treated me like this? Because I'm a, you know, hit right. brown woman from the Middle East. But it just reminded you that racism is something that so, you feel it. It's so right. Sometimes, you know, uh, intellectualize it and try to measure it because it's such a lived experience. And I'm like, it's so interesting how we just miss these stories. And then it's like, well, how do totally. you prove totally. it? <laughs> it's been so long, like my daughter now is 10, but I look at my eldest daughter who I, whose birth story is, is the one that was so traumatic, but um, I'm still processing the trauma of my own story. Right. Just very recently, even after I wrote the book, like it was a month or two ago where I was like, that guy, that doctor was really effing racist. <laughs> brown bitch on my table, pardon my friend. You know? <laughs> and then I was just thinking, I'm like, I didn't, I didn't think that at the time. Right. You know, because I'm just like, why did you have, like, hello, I'm dying, save me. Right, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it takes time to process it. I think it's totally valid, though. In the moment, I mean, I can imagine myself, I would have been the same way. I would have been like, sorry to bother you. Can I? <laughs> I totally like that. I remember I was like, fever is that high. You're just, you start shaking. Yeah. And I, was really cold and I kept being like, can I have a blanket? Can I have a blanket? <laughs> right now, I would have been effing blank. But you know what? You're also right. like, you know, I, and I say this in the book, I'm like, you know, I, 
I complained afterwards about the doctor and he was like taken off the board and, uh, I, you know, they gave me all these apologies and stuff. And I'm like, right. I had pursued, and they refunded me the anesthesiology costs. I can never right. Um, but that went, you know, to my insurance. But to this day, I'm like, why didn't I take this to court, man? I should have, like, totally taken legal action. Right. But I was like, you forget. Like, I was really, I wasn't well. I almost died. Then I had my, my right. Out of my, you know, my thyroid issues. Plus, they don't tell you that. They don't tell you that C-section and a cesarean is a serious major surgery. It is the right. number one reason why women in America go to the hospital. Right. Um, major surgery. It's kind of pitched to you like, oh, in and out. Right. Like, it took me like a year to recover feeling in my stomach after my first. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell you it can get infected it was like you can't i mean it's major major surgery um but you know right. hospital america also make like 50 grand plus per right. season and then you know making like five thousand while a woman is like in like labor for like 30 40 hours so like right. i get that the hospitals are businesses and they want you to have a c-section yeah and they make more money but no one cares about the woman totally well, I mean, that is a big driving factor also in America's maternal health crisis. Yes, it's race, but it's also our abhorrent C-section rates, which are just rising and rising. I mean, it, it's absolutely dangerous. I mean, even after I had two, yeah. I'm just learning about them. I mean, I had no idea no. that when it's <laughs> an emergency C-section, they literally just got to go in there, but they're like cutting you open and taking a baby out. Right. Which and is. Which is a lot. I mean, no wonder it hurts. (laughs) Exactly. No, I think you're right, though, because it it, like people talk about C-section so casually and I don't have kids. My my mom had C-sections for my brother and I, but I don't have kids myself. But I know like from friends that have been pregnant and just how hearing how people like ask other, you know, pregnant people if they oh are you gonna have a c-section like it's just like so casually it's like it's like are you gonna have a latte after lunch yeah (laughs) yeah and it's like as if that's the choice of the pregnant woman too they're like oh did you decide like are you gonna have a c-section or are you gonna do and it's like wait what I don't I worked in women's health. I was like from this world. And I still didn't know that after you have a C-section, you have an option for like a V-back and, or that you can ask for like a doula, like all these things. And the reason that stuff is important is that women have to know that they have choices. I didn't know that. Right. Have choices. And, but the other thing is, is like, how can you advocate for yourself? This is why it's so important to have, you know, a doula or a midwife. Right. because no one is paying attention to you. Honestly, it's so right. true. Like, do a lot of work with Every Mother Counts. And, you know, Christy Chillington Burns always says um, that, you know, we think about pregnancy in America and, and a pregnant woman like candy wrap or a, a right. And the baby is the candy. And as soon as you get the baby, you just throw the wrapper away. And it's so true. No, so true. Um, you know, even when you're pregnant, you have, you know, you have to go to your doctor checkups. like, yeah. And, visits you do it's like pretty much weekly and then right. 
you don't see the doctor again until your six week visit. <laughs> Which is so wild. It's like go home and have the baby and then right. it's harder in America because it's not only like we're having these issues medically, then we go home, we don't have leave, right? Yeah. <laughs> care. Absolutely. Just die. No wonder women are dying. Right. You know, our birth rate is like, eh. I mean, I wouldn't, I, there was like, what did I read the other day about how the pandemic is like impacting America's fertility? I'm like, of course it is. Right. In America, I would not like it. Exactly. Birth, you can totally die. Of course you can. Well, and I thought it was so interesting in your book, the parts that you wrote about your mother who seemed amazing and she seemed I mean, correct me if I misspeak, but she seemed to be like a midwife, like, or have that midwife, like, experience, like, she would just go to all these different women or women would come to her. Am I misspeaking? Is that accurate? Well, she was a member of the parliament. Okay. Okay. You said midwife because she handled all the help of the women who worked in our home. Okay. Maybe that's what I'm getting. I know that the... Like the nan, your nanny had that birth story as well. I do remember your mom being like a really influential, you know, person. I remember a lot of people coming to your home. So I'm sorry for mixing up the midwife. I mean, it's not. <laughs> but the reason I told that story and, and opened the book with that story was because it was all about how healthcare. Uh, in Bangladesh, growing up for women was just a matter of luck. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was non-existent. And if you got access to it, you were really lucky. Right. And you know, my mom was able to provide health care for the women who worked in our home. Right. Because she was very aware of these issues, but also because she was married to a rich and powerful man who was my dad. Right. And they're both politically active, this, this, and that. But she didn't have to do like what she was doing. I mean, my mom, right. aside from being a member of parliament at the time, you know, she's, you know, she started the first woman. She's like a major feminist. Right, right. <laughs> Issues. And this is where my feminist soul uh, also, of course, comes from. She, she taught me everything I know, but also to teach me and my sisters from a very young age that it was a, it was a, it was dangerous. Right. And, born a girl in, in Bangladesh and we were so privileged we were like completely removed you know like it like in a bubble yeah absolutely you have the women who work for you you know I mean domestic right. culture this is another uh cultural thing yeah I just I mean it, it the re I love that chapter it, it's the most personal yeah. chapter. it was the first chapter I wrote when it when I started writing the book and um I hadn't told that story about my nanny since I had left Bangladesh. I don't know why. Yeah. And, you know, like my best friends are still like my college roommates. They were like <laughs> the friends I made when I came to the state, college roommates from UVA. And I hadn't even told them. Like when they read the oh. book, you, know, you never told us who was it, Bob. Oh. I didn't tell that story. But when I started writing that book, it was funny because the book kept coming back to my birth experience. Right. And the first maternal mortality death I actually knew was my nanny. Right. Back to that. Um, but it also came back to how random it was that she even had access. To totally. Her. You just don't. 
I mean, 90% of uh, births in Bangladesh took place at home at that time. Right. So that was it. You know, right. so the fact she was giving birth in a hospital and she still died. Um, but anyhow, so yeah, it was just, it was just a matter of luck and, and so random. And, you know, that's the point of that story was that I learned that in Bangladesh at the time in the eighties, you know, overwhelmingly women were powerless, but my mom right. was powerful, but she still didn't, wasn't able to save, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that was such a, I'm glad that you put it in there. I'm sure it was so hard to write because, you know, I remember like feeling emotional when I read it. And I remember, I think it was either that chapter or the next one where you talked about like the abortion laws. Yeah, that was the second chapter. Yes. Okay. I really loved that. And I thought it was really interesting because I went to law school. So I was an attorney previously. Wow. Yeah. And I never learned that in law school. And I remember talking to my best friend who also went to law school with me. And I remember being like, don't you think it's weird that we didn't learn about this? In I'm not surprised <laughs> I didn't learn about that at all. Because, I mean, uh, first of all, abortion is so political. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that class would be like shut down. <laughs> totally. That chapter and bringing that up is that, oh my God, U.S. foreign policy is so powerful. It's not just about military. Right. Americans don't know. But I also feel like, and I know American women. I mean, now I've been living right. here for like five years plus. If they want to mobilize and they know about something that's right. wrong, people will get changed. So yeah. that, like, initially I was like, oh, this chapter is so boring. And I don't want to no, talk I about it. <laughs> On. But my editor was like, no, you had to blah, blah. And I'm glad that it's in it exactly for a response like that, because I no. feel like American women should know and then get really fired up. Totally. Yeah, it totally. I felt really fired up when I read it. And I was just thinking, you know, kind of like what we talked about earlier. It's not even lay people that don't have access to this information. Like I went to law school and I don't even I mean, if yeah. we aren't getting taught about these things like we were talking about earlier with med school what they're being taught what people are being taught in law schools like where are people supposed to learn about these things to change the system because it's really that's a great question but i think if you really care about something eventually you will find out totally (laughs) i was working on capitol hill as a feminist policy (laughs) legislation and i had no idea that women in america could die in childbirth i didn't think it was possible right thing and i'm like what was i doing but i was like violence like, against women with like joe biden like it wasn't <laughs> random so how did i not know this like how did no one tell me i have such respect for anyone who's given birth but especially i think it's got to be so hard during asked that or done that to them you know the richest yeah. the world it's the same things we're doing now to parents like oh right. this variant is really bad and dangerous for kids oh your kids are under four i'll send them back to school right. i know <laughs> it's just again by the way anything happens to those kids is going to be like oh that mom you know totally parents is the mom oh my god oh, you can't <laughs> no you can't at all oh, you really can't 
Like, I feel like, I don't know, sometimes I just feel like motherhood in America, my next book. Like, we are just, do we hate mothers? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think, I love that. I definitely can't wait to read that one. I would love to hear how you break that all down because there, I mean, there's so much data out there on like. That's pointing to, yes, we do hate mothers. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I don't know if you like really just pay attention. So many people ask just like every day, I feel like people ask the most sexist questions oh my God, yeah. surrounding parenting children. And it's, yeah, I mean, it is. <laughs> people don't even think maybe it should be like paternity leave. What about paternity leave? Right. And then the great dads that do want to stay at home, we're just like, yeah. oh, you're so great. Exactly. <laughs> but the mom is like bleeding to death in the corner. Oh, yeah. People act like maternity leave is a vacation or something. Yeah. It's, in, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's incredible. I also talk about in the book how, you know, I went back to Bangladesh in like March of 2021. All time is like, well, because I hadn't seen my parents. My father right. was, there was like this window gap. It was like, it was like going through a portal. <laughs> yeah. To kind of like run to Bangladesh uh, and come back right before Delta hit. Yeah. Like, Oh God, it was just a nightmare. But anyhow, I went back and uh, I went to my dad's constituency and I was talking to this, talking to a bunch of women, uh, local women leaders. And this one woman said to me like, oh, it's so great that you're writing a book on women's health in America. And like, congrats. I was like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) How does that make a difference for women in Bangladesh? How the hell does that impact us? That's a really good question. And then I was like, what? I was like, if women in the richest country in the world, such educated, powerful women, okay, the rest of us are so screwed. Oh, that's such a good point. It's going to be important through your foreign policy. Right. right? You can't, like, that's why people are like, oh, why do you care about abortion wars in America? It will impact everybody. Don't think it's just going to be America. I mean, don't forget, like, this this is the thing that Americans have to understand. Policy made on Capitol Hill in Washington. I mean, I live here. I think, like, people kind of get it but right. as soon as you leave dc i don't think people understand right how powerful these policies are why are people always listening to what america's doing or what america's saying or what american politicians are saying or why does everybody watch the u.s presidential elections because it matters america can be right. you know a lot of american foreign policy can override you right. know i mean sovereign nation laws like in bangladesh is on abortion rights uh, right law over it i mean that's crazy no other country can do that no it's absolutely that's so true and i never would have learned that had i not read your book too it <laughs> it is so impactful i mean it, truly it you just never think like americans i don't think think like that we don't know and we don't think oh these laws and but then the great thing about americans also is like people like you then you are aware and then you right. do at least you're not like that sucks. <laughs> Most Americans are really like, no, or I'm going to do this or do something with my look. Right. Life. You know, so that's yeah. another this book isn't like anti-American, anti-American. It's like, no, actually, I love this country. Right. It's me so much. And then my children are American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have to get this right here. And it's solvable. It's not uh, cancer. Right. It's not 
it's women's health. It shouldn't be an enigma. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you could please test on us. Yeah. <laughs> willing. Please do more research. I mean, I, this is another thing I say in the book. We should always want to know more. Yeah, absolutely. I've, no, I think that's so true. It's definitely, it. I don't think it ever came across as like a hating a hate book it really is just like here's all the knowledge and data all right what are we gonna do about it (laughs) like it should be empowering but the onus is not only on totally give us a break anything else we should do birth (laughs) your vagina exactly (laughs) exactly I found it fascinating uh, while I was writing the book and by the time I finished the book that we're not believed about anything about our bodies. Totally. Somebody grabbed our ass at work. Totally. Doctor is an asshole when we're giving birth. I mean, it's it's fascinating. (laughs) It is. It's like. Our body, right? (laughs) Right. That's why I love that you said you started your interviews with like, I believe you because important probably one of the few times women were told that (laughs) was when you were interviewed you know they were interviewing with you i I wish somebody had said that to me you know so many totally well i feel like i've learned so much from your book and today i'm so appreciative of your time and being and and understanding uh the book i feel like you really saw the book even though you had to read it you know what i mean no yeah Thank you so much. I feel that. Thank you. It means so much to me. And thank you. I so appreciate it.